The 17th century was a turbulent time in English history. The violence especially picked up around the middle of the 1600s, from civil wars and revolutions to imperial rivalries and a fire that practically destroyed London. But it was at the beginning of the century that the best-known attempted act of violence in English history was committed. In November of 1605, there was a plan afoot to assassinate not only the King of England, but the entire English Parliament as well. The plot, and its failure, have had a major impact not only on English history, but also on world history and culture as a whole. This is Foiled. Episode 10, The Gunpowder Plot. Before we really get started, we have to go back even further than we already are to talk about King Henry VIII. He became King of England a little less than a hundred years before this story starts, but his actions reverberate throughout our story. If you know anything about Henry VIII, it's probably something to do with his six wives. When he wanted to end his first marriage, he did what most Catholic monarchs would do, and asked for an annulment from the Pope. But when the Pope refused this, Henry responded by separating England's church from Catholicism, replacing it with the Protestant Church of England. But there were still Catholics in England, and they would face varying levels of persecution throughout the years. Eventually, Henry died, and then after some family drama that we don't have time to get into here, his daughter Elizabeth ended up on the throne. She also had a strained relationship with the Catholic Church. By the end of her reign, the queen had been excommunicated by the pope and had fought a few wars with Catholic Spain. In turn, English Catholics were persecuted pretty harshly throughout her reign, many being tortured or executed. Queen Elizabeth I ruled for 44 years and then died in 1603 with no heir, ending the House of Tudor. So who took the throne after that? Elizabeth's first cousin, twice removed, James of the House of Stuart. James was born in Edinburgh in 1566, the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was forced to abdicate the Scottish throne in favor of her son, and he became King James VI of Scotland in 1567, at the ripe age of one. He spent his childhood in isolated comfort, a puppet of the powerful lords of Scotland. His separation from his mother at this early age was key to the way he would rule in the future. Mary was Catholic, but James didn't grow up with that influence, and he was Protestant. James was well-educated and well-read, and later in life he'd even go on to do some writing of his own, on topics as varied as politics, poetry, demonology, and his hatred for tobacco. Eventually, though, James grew up, and began to take more power for himself as king, he began to try and gain the favor of his distant cousin, Elizabeth I of England, something that would work out pretty well for him when she died childless in 1603. He was named the heir to the English throne, and so when the queen died, he became King James I of England as well as James VI of Scotland. He was probably the first monarch to ever call himself the King of Great Britain and throughout his reign, James would advocate the idea of England and Scotland being ruled as one united kingdom. But that wouldn't happen until nearly a century after his death. Early in his reign over England, James was fairly tolerant toward his Catholic subjects, 
at least compared to his predecessor, Elizabeth I. So by tolerant, I mean that he wasn't actively executing them. Tensions would pretty quickly rise, though. You see, at this point, the Vatican still held out hope that England could be turned back into a Catholic kingdom. Just a few months into James's reign, two plots were uncovered against him. One was led by Catholic priests who wanted to kidnap the king and hold him hostage until he agreed to improve the condition of English Catholics. Another idea was to kick James off the throne and replace him with his cousin Arbella. This second scheme was cooked up by a few English nobles, including Sir Walter Raleigh, who was maybe better known as the founder of the lost colony of Roanoke. More importantly, the plot was supposedly backed up and funded by the Catholic King of Spain. Whether that was actually true or not, the uncovering and foiling of these plots did nothing but exacerbate religious tensions in England. James, meanwhile, continued to pay lip service to the idea of religious toleration, despite being openly opposed to Catholicism spreading any more than it already had. Maybe he did personally mean the things he said. It's hard to say. Regardless, he didn't really do much to back up those words, and on the contrary, things looked like they were about to get worse for Catholics. There were even talks of a bill being introduced to Parliament which would completely outlaw Catholicism in England. It was in this climate that a few conspirators got together and tried to figure out what should be done. They decided that they weren't going to mess around with kidnappings or palace coups. Instead, they were going to kill the king. In all, there were 13 conspirators in on the plot against King James I of England. We don't have to go over all of them here, but there are two that you've got to know about for this story. The first is the ringleader, Robert Catesby. He was born in Warwickshire, England, sometime around 1572. His parents were Catholics that were pretty notorious for refusing to attend Anglican services, and Robert would follow in their footsteps. He took part in a failed rebellion against Queen Elizabeth in 1601, but being from a fairly well-off family, he got off with just a fine. When the Queen died a couple of years later, Catesby, like other English Catholics, had high hopes that the new king would treat them better. Like his fellow Catholics, he would be disappointed to realize that things weren't going to be getting better for them anytime soon. He started recruiting other Catholics to put together a plan to arrange a change in leadership. All assassination conspiracies call for someone who knows a little something about violence, and Catesby knew just the man for that job. Guy Fox. Fox was just a couple years older than Catesby, and also a Catholic. Other than that, not a whole lot is known about his early life. During this time period, it was fairly common for young English Catholics to cross the Channel and go fight for Catholic countries in the near-constant wars of religion. In his 20s, Guy Fawkes joined the Spanish army and fought with them against the Protestant Dutch in the Eighty Years' War. He fought in quite a few battles and became a junior officer. Fawkes became pretty well known and liked among the Spanish for his service, and in 1603, he tried to use his connections to get funding for a Catholic rebellion in England. This didn't work out, but soon after, he was recruited to join Robert Catesby and 11 other men in a plot to kill King James. In May of 1604, the conspirators began meeting in secret to make their plans, swearing themselves to secrecy. They were mainly from prominent families, 
and one of them was so rich that he was able to buy a house that was practically next door to the Palace of Westminster, where Parliament is held. This man and Guy Fawkes began to live there so that it wouldn't look weird if they were hanging around there all the time. Guy Fawkes, who was at that point calling himself the brilliantly crafted pseudonym John Johnson, was put in charge of gunpowder. They had to acquire it slowly in order to not raise suspicion. You see, their plan called for more powder than what would be needed to load a musket or even a cannon. The conspirators had a much bigger plan in mind. One of the more noble conspirators was able to rent storage space in the basement of the palace, because apparently that was something you could just do back then. The conspirators began to smuggle barrels of gunpowder down there as they accumulated them. The plan was this. They would wait for Parliament to be called, because the English monarch is always present at the opening ceremony of Parliament. Then, once the king, every member of Parliament, as well as the most prominent judges and bishops of England were there, Guy Fawkes would go into the basement and light the fuse before making a quick escape. The Palace of Westminster would explode, and everyone inside would be killed. This would be the pretext for a wider uprising. James's young daughter, Elizabeth, would be placed on the throne as a puppet, and the Kingdom of England would return to the Catholic fold. All the plotters had to do now was wait for Parliament to be called. Initially, it was supposed to be in the summer of 1605, but an outbreak of the plague forced a postponement. So instead, Parliament would open later in the year, and specifically on the 5th of November. William Parker better known by his noble title, Lord Monteagle, was a member of Parliament, and specifically of the House of Lords. He was also a Catholic, though he was not in on the plot. That's until October 26, 1605, when he received an anonymous letter. The letter isn't extremely long, so I'll go ahead and read it in full. It said, quote, My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. And think not slightly of this advertisement, but retire yourself into your country where you may expect the event in safety. For though there be no appearance of any stir, yet I say they shall receive a terrible blow this parliament, and yet they shall not see who hurts them. This counsel is not to be condemned, because it may do you good and can do you no harm, for the danger is past as soon as you have burnt the letter. And I hope God will give you the grace to make good use of it, to whose holy protection I commend you. End quote. Over 400 years later, it's not known who wrote this letter. It's possible that one of the conspirators wrote it. After all, 13 is a pretty big group to keep a secret and one of them may have been concerned for their fellow Catholics in Parliament. One of the conspirators, Francis Tresham, was Monteagle's brother-in-law, so he is consistently viewed as a possibility. It's also been suggested that Monteagle might have somehow found out about the plot and forged the letter to make himself look good. Whoever wrote the letter, Monteagle was hesitant on what to do with the information he'd just been given. Initially, he thought it was probably a hoax. Despite the instructions in the letter, he didn't burn it. Instead, Monteagle decided to get some advice from his friend, the Earl of Salisbury, and showed him the letter. 
the two decided that maybe it would be a good idea for the king to know about all this. When James returned to London from a hunting trip on November 1st, Monteagle and Salisbury showed him the letter. If the two lords read the letter figuratively, the king took the letter quite literally. Specifically, he thought the word blow was supposed to be a reference to, quote, some stratagem of fire and powder, end quote. The next day, November 2nd, the conspirators caught wind that, somehow, their plan had been leaked. Robert Catesby immediately suspected Francis Tresham, Monteagle's brother-in-law, of betraying them, and confronted him about it. Whether it was him or not, Tresham seems to have convinced Catesby that he was innocent. Catesby and the other conspirators decided that they would go ahead and go through with their plans. After all, it didn't look like anyone close to the king was taking the threat seriously. That same day, it was decided by the royal council that the palace would be searched before the opening of Parliament on the 5th. Around midnight on November 5th, 1605, a search party, which included Lord Monteagle, began to do exactly that. The main level of the palace was searched, and then the lower levels were too. They entered one of the least storage spaces in the basement, and there they found a man waiting. He seemed to just be hanging out in this cellar by the dull light of a lantern, surrounded by piles of coal and firewood. He was tall and dressed in a dark cloak and hat. He was wearing riding boots with spurs, clearly planning on going somewhere soon and in a hurry. The man was apprehended, and he insisted his name was John Johnson. The search party found some matches on him, and then they lifted up the piles of wood and coal. Underneath, there were 36 barrels of gunpowder, more than enough to completely level the House of Lords where the opening ceremony would convene. Mr. Johnson was taken into custody. He was interrogated by the King's Council, as well as the King himself. Then, on James's orders, he was tortured. By all accounts, he was resistant to the torture. He admitted that he was part of a plot to blow up Parliament with King James inside, but he didn't give away any of his co-conspirators. Ironically enough, this earned him the respect of the king. It was not enough to save his friends, or himself. Robert Catesby, out in the English countryside still trying to drum up support for an uprising, was shot and killed during a standoff with the Sheriff of Worcester. The conspirators who weren't killed alongside Catesby were sentenced to be executed, including John Johnson, who by now had been identified as Guy Fawkes. They were to be publicly hanged, drawn and quartered, an extremely painful death. This meant being dragged through the streets, hanged until they were nearly dead, being disemboweled while still alive, often castrated, and then decapitated. This was the fate of most of the conspirators. On January 31st, 1606, it was Guy Fawkes' turn. He was so weak from the months of torture that he could barely stand, but he managed to climb the scaffold, around which there was a huge crowd. The noose was placed around his neck, and then he either fell over or jumped off the scaffolding in one final defiance of the king. Either way, the noose broke his neck and he died instantly, spared the agony of his punishment. Guy Fawkes was dead at the age of 35. King James I was not blown up on the 5th of November, 
or any other day after that. He would rule both England and Scotland for another 20 years, and in that time, would do quite a bit to impact the course of modern history. Three months after the death of Guy Fawkes, James would grant a charter to the Virginia Company. This was the beginning of the English colonization of the Americas, with Jamestown, the first permanent English colony, being founded in 1607. James also began the formal English colonization of Ireland, a decision that would reverberate throughout the centuries. He authorized and sponsored an English translation of the Bible, which is still in use to this day. James also continued the traditions of arts and culture that his predecessor Elizabeth began. For example, it's been frequently theorized that William Shakespeare may have written the tragedy of Macbeth in response to the gunpowder plot, choosing the setting of Scotland to impress the Scottish King James. The king was not a healthy man. In his later years, he suffered from arthritis, gout, kidney stones, malaria, alcoholism, loss of his teeth, and possibly porphyria. But it was dysentery that finally killed him on March 27, 1625, when he was 58 years old. He'd ruled England for 22 years, and Scotland for 57, the longest reigning monarch in Scottish history. He was succeeded by his son, Charles I, who would rule over England during its civil war in the 1640s. Had James died in 1605, Charles, who was only four years old at the time, would have taken the throne, and English history could have been very different. Not long after the attempted assassination of the king in Parliament, a popular rhyme began to circulate about the events of that night in 1605. Remember, remember, the 5th of November, the gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And it definitely has not been forgotten. In Great Britain, Bonfire Night, or Guy Fawkes Night, is celebrated every November 5th, usually with an effigy of Guy Fawkes being burned on a massive bonfire accompanied by fireworks. The image of Guy Fawkes has even become famous worldwide. Masks styled after his likeness were designed for the graphic novel and film V for Vendetta, and were then adopted as a symbol for the online group Anonymous. The British Parliament hasn't forgotten about Guy Fawkes either. To this day, before a session of Parliament can meet, the basement is checked. You know, just in case. 